And hello, and welcome everyone to From the Comic Page to the Silver Screen. I will be your host for the next hour or so, Cape Joel. Uh, you may also know me as Joel Daly. Maybe you've seen my channel, and uh, judging by a lot of the blank expressions out there in the crowd, you haven't heard of me yet. That's fine. I hope that if I do my job by the end of this panel, you will get to know me a little bit better. It's uh, high noon in London, Ontario, as we do this, and I know it's high noon in London because the sun is literally beating down on my face right now making me blind and making it hard to see the crap, but that's okay. We're going to work through this one. Uh, I took this uh, panel very seriously in the researching portion. I took a ton of notes, and uh, by notes I mean I uh, put little points here on my pad. So if I look down every so often, that's not me ignoring you. That's me actually just, you know, trying to pretend I know what I'm talking about. So, uh, yes, the, the, the real question I hope to answer with this panel is how was it that superhero and comic book movies took over the silver screen, took over the world of cinema, because, I mean, it feels like a new one comes out every week now. Uh, in fact, as we're here right now, uh, Joker with Joaquin Phoenix is coming out. Uh, we got all those new uh, Marvel movies coming down the pipeline. But uh, to really understand uh, how this happened and where we're going, I think it only makes sense to start back at the very, very beginning, the first ever superhero story ever adapted for the silver screen. And you know what, hey, I want this to be a fun, kind of interactive panel with the crowd out there. So uh, if anyone knows, feel free to shout out. What do you think was the first superhero adapted? Anybody? Anybody at all? It's a harder question than you think, and it's also probably not who you think, too. The first superhero ever adapted for the screen was actually Captain Marvel. Now, when I say Captain Marvel, obviously I mean Shazam. Again, that's a whole other kettle of worms as to why those characters had to change their names. Furthermore, the first hero adapted was neither a Marvel comic nor a DC comic, because at that point in history, Captain Marvel belonged to neither. Captain Marvel was a completely independent, Fawcett-published comic. So I think that's kind of crazy to think that the first superhero was neither Marvel or DC, given that, you know, the stranglehold those two companies have on the genre and as the scene as it is. Uh, this movie, it actually wasn't a movie, is the thing. It was a set of serials, and serials for some of the younger people out there who don't know were basically short little mini-movies that they showed uh, in front of bigger movies. And uh, the fact that, you know, we can draw the line all the way back to the 1940s, that means superhero movies as they stand are almost as old as comic books, uh, which I find very truly fascinating. Uh, the Adventures of Captain Marvel was a 12-part black and white serial series that ran in a bunch of different lengths there. This was perfect for movie makers at the time because, you know, comic book stories had action, adventure, all the stuff that had done so well in the pulps, like, you know, Doc Savage and Zorro and all those other characters, so it only made sense to adapt comic properties. And again, these were short, played before movies, played really well to the kids' audience there. And uh, if you look back at this Captain Marvel uh, black and white serial, it actually doesn't look too bad. The costume is fairly accurate. The origin, it's all there. Billy Batson, Wizard Shazam, all that stuff you know, it's all pretty much there. So they actually did a good job adapting it. Yeah, they changed some other stuff. The villain isn't actually from the comics. And, you know, they uh, move it to the Middle East and everything. The, the flying is the thing that always stood out to me, and that the flying looked so bad in this old black and white serial. Like, even for the day, you could tell that it was just a dude lying, like, basically planking, and then filming it to being like, oh, yeah, he's totally flying, yeah, oh, yeah. 
definitely. This is something I feel comic book and superhero movies wouldn't get better, uh, or get right, I should say, until a little later on, but we'll definitely talk about that. Uh, in 1943, Batman actually got his first set of black and white serials. He got 15 parts, because, you know, Batman always has to outdo himself. He got 15 parts. And uh, man, you go back and watch this now, and this is so amazingly dated in some truly fascinating ways. This is like World War II era Batman, who is not really fighting crime in Gotham as a vigilante. He's fighting Japanese uh, uh, spies in America. Yeah, Batman's not so much a vigilante in these stories as he is like an actual agent of the government. And the plot involves him trying to stop a radium heist. Again, this is so wonderfully dated. Also, too, both these serials being in the 1940s, uh, let's just say they're products of their time, and let's just say that, yeah, they're a little kind of really racist, <laughs> these things. So if you do go back and try and hunt those down, be wary of that. Now, on the note of Batman, that takes us to our next big decade for comic book movies, the 1960s. And at this time, Batmania was sweeping North America, thanks in no small part to, of course, the Adam West Batman show. And the Adam West Batman show had a movie. What's crazy about the movie is that they actually made it backwards, is that they wanted to make the movie first, introduce audiences to the characters, get people excited for it, then come out with the show. It's not what happened, though. They got a whole season's worth of the Adam West show before they eventually turned around and made the movie. Uh, I, I, I get the feeling a lot of people are probably thinking about that movie a lot recently because I know Honest Trailers went back and talked about it. And man, is it wonderfully insane and wonderfully 60s and wonderfully Silver Age Batman with all the villains trying to, you know, turn uh, all the leaders of the world <laughs> into liquid and then get carrier pigeons to carry the ransom. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy in all the best ways. Uh, the next big, I think, uh, hurdle that the superhero movie genre took, and, you know, it's the next, the next level we really got it. We went from being, you know, kind of for kids, being kind of campy, to actually kind of being more serious and more feature length, and that was, of course, the Richard Donner Superman movie from 1978, and I'm sure if I was just to hum a couple words of the theme, you could all just hum along with me, right? Da, 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 da. Great stuff. Still holds up after all this time. But yeah, with the Donner movie, you really see a switch in like ideology when it comes to approaching the material. Because Donner didn't really just make one movie, he made like several movies. Because he got like this Flash Gordon space epic stuff with Marlon Brando as Jor-El and Krypton before it blows up. Uh, Brando, I'm sure you've heard this piece of trivia before, was actually paid a million dollars for his very short role in this movie, and that was a million dollars in 70s money. I'm bad at math and inflation, but I can only assume that that's a heck of a lot of money for a very, very small amount of work. We got kind of a madcap office romance with, you know, the uh, Lois and Clark stuff. You got uh, your Lex Luthor side plot where he's basically a Bond villain, has his own lair and everything. But perhaps the thing that stands out the most about this movie for me, and the thing that still is so often reiterated and for great reason when talking about the 78 Superman movie, you will believe a man can fly. Because that's really what they managed to nail, right? The flying didn't look completely silly in this one. It wasn't just a dude planking on a board. They actually figured out how to make that look cool and make that look uh, heroic, which is great. Uh, the movie uh, still to this day 
uh, cast such a huge shadow that just recently it was inducted into the United States Library of Congress National Film Registry as being culturally and historically and aesthetically significant. And I think we can all agree that it most definitely is those things. It was also a big financial uh, gainer at the time there. It made uh, $300 million at the box office, which again back then was still really huge. I know that seems like nothing now when Avengers movies are continually breaking bank all the time, but this was this was huge for the time. And obviously, you know, with Superman flying so high and doing so good, it was only a matter of time until we got a Batman movie. And again, to this day, this movie, its theme, its score, so thoroughly burned into my mind is the 1989 Michael Keaton, Tim Burton Batman movie. Yeah, there you see, yeah, dude with the Batman hat in the back, that's exactly, man. I mean, so much of this movie, I, back when you had VHSs, I remember owning this one on VHS and just wearing this one out to no end. And of course, hey, I'm a huge fan of Batman the Animated Series, and if you didn't get that movie, you wouldn't have gotten the Animated Series. Yeah. <laughs> the same guy who gave me a thumbs up was giving me a hand sign. Was, that's fine, you know, that's what's great about Batman. There's one for everybody. Uh, at the time, too, this was considered crazy to cast Keaton and to have Tim Burton, a guy mostly known for Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands, direct. And, you know, in what would become a major trend in Batman movies and casting and directing, the fans at the time were actually not happy with it, which I think continues to happen whenever they announce something new with Batman. Fans aren't happy. But, you know, they all find their fan bases as they tend to do. Uh, the movie was not only just a box office success, but a critical success as well, lauded for its design choices, its gothic architecture, its amazing Elfman score, and you know, uh, it spawned really a juggernaut franchise at that point. You know, Batman was unstoppable at the movies at that point. You got at least one more Keaton movie, and then Batman almost becomes the American James Bond, where it's like, well, okay, who's gonna play him next after that? You know, maybe, uh, you know, maybe all these other people will get a chance, and I think they all bring their own little extra something to it, their own little flair to it. Uh, sorry, what's it? Again, I took notes, everyone, I swear. I swear I know what I'm doing. Uh, now, a big turning point uh, after this, you know, superhero movies kind of calm down for a little bit. You get your Judge Dreads in there, you know, you get your Howard the Ducks and what haves you, but nothing really set the world on fire until 1998 to 2002. And again, this, this if I'm a good essay writer, this is the heart of my thesis right here. These were the years that changed everything for comic book movies. These are the ones that really, I think, you know, hammered it in and showed that this genre was not going away, that it had legs. It, throughout the years of 1998 to 2002, we got three movies. Now, up until now, this uh, panel has been very DC-heavy, and with good reason. But in, in these years, we got three back-to-back -back films that I think you all know, that I think you're all pretty familiar with. Blade, the original X-Men, and Spider-Man all came out in these years all became huge hits and also in that time too if you uh, ever saw uh what is it jay and silent bob strike back they devote a whole scene in the movie talking about this where it's like okay so this showed that these properties are very viable and every studio started buying up comic book properties at this point that's how big it absolutely was blade i find especially cool because here was a lesser known hero who became a big hit because they made a particularly cool movie about him also too african-american lead 
We're only gonna talk about a couple of these, but I think that's really super cool. Uh, X-Men, again, I think a perfect example of how attitudes to war comic book movies changed at this point in history. Uh, the director and the creative team on this one really took it seriously and really took the whole civil rights message to heart and made that the backbone of it. I still get chills. Uh, reliving that first scene in that movie where you see a young Magneto getting ripped away from his parents and it's like, wow, as a comic fan sitting in the theater and seeing this, wow, someone actually took these stories I've read seriously and actually saw like, no man, there's real pathos in here and real emotion should you care to, you know, mine it and indeed they did. Then you got the Spider-Man movie, of course. Again, crazy choice the way that they cast that one, the way that they direct it. And probably the smartest thing they chose to do in that movie was actually ignore everything that had happened in Spider-Man for the last decade and just do a straight-up origin really, really based in the 60s thing. Oh, I see someone with a hand up. Uh, don't worry, we'll have Q&A at the end. I, should, I probably should have mentioned that, that we'll have Q&A at the end because I know I'm going to talk uh, too fast and we'll have time to spare. But uh, yeah, Spider-Man movie also, all of these spawned huge franchises with at least one really good sequel and one really bad sequel. That was another trend of this era in comic book movies. No one could beat the threequel. No one could ever make a good third superhero movie for whatever reason that is. Uh, from there we move on to 2005, of course, where we have Batman Begins. And this was a huge moment too because it showed, hey, you could actually breathe fresh life into a comic book franchise that had been, you know, uh, kind of faltering a little bit there uh, by casting new people, going in a brand new direction, and again, spawned a huge franchise off the back of it for at least three more movies. Completely changed the way uh, Warner Brothers and DC did business as well. The whole Batman Begins Nolan franchise, it got to the point where everything was looking like that even if arguably it shouldn't, but you know, that's a panel for another day. Now, 2008 was another banner year for comic book movies, and in fact, I hold this up as maybe the greatest year ever for comic book movies, because there was, while there are many that came out, there are two huge ones that once again changed everything. The first one was The Dark Knight, which again, I don't think I need to sell a whole comic convention on, you know, why that movie was good and why everyone liked that one. Uh, Heath Ledger, of course, won an Academy Award posthumously for his portrayal of the Joker. I think a lot of people's favorite portrayal still. Uh, got a lot of award buzz. This one, again, continued to solidify the way Warner Brothers and DC did movie business and what they thought people truly wanted to see with it. And uh, yeah, I mean, just what more can you say about it? It was just, it was huge. The other big thing that happened that year was a little movie called Iron Man came out in 2008 as well. And I can vividly remember being in high school and all my friends knowing that I read comic books and said, hey man, we gotta go see Iron Man. And me as a comic book fan, I'm like, you mean that perennial B-lister? Really? Okay, whatever, that's fine. But you know what? I shut up pretty quick after I saw the movie and after how hyped everyone else with this was also the movie that ushered in what would become a brand new trend, the post credit scene. Oh man, and oh would there be so many more. You just took your first steps into a much, much bigger universe. And with this movie, you get what I think is really something that is not often said, but something that I give all the credit in the world for why superhero movies have managed to take over, and that is it let your average film go, or your average person, who might not even go to a Comic-Con in on the fun continuity metagame that drives so many comic book fans. 
where it's like, look, obviously I gotta see all of these. I need to know where the next infinity stone is. I need to know the next thing that's gonna cross over. And I think that's so amazing that really quite simply, they were able to take this feeling that I as a comic fan thought that only I would have forever and deliver it to the rest of the world. Uh, obviously in the same year you had the Incredible Hulk, which no one talks about near as much, but hey, that, that was there too. You gotta give it credit, you know, they tie together. Uh, Hellboy the Golden Army was that year too. I put this on here solely for myself. I'm a big Hellboy Golden Army fan. I, I know I'm only keeping this to Marvel and DC because if I did every comic book movie property, we would be here all day. Maybe that can be the sequel panel. Uh, another interesting thing, you know, when we look culturally at both uh, Iron Man and Dark Knight, these movies were both in many ways direct reactions to 9-11 and the world that we were living in at the time. Dark Knight is all about, you know, a, uh, a, a kind of police spy state that Batman's like, oh, you know, I could probably fight a lot of crime if I did this, but is it the right thing to do? Iron Man, even more direct, even more on the nose. He's there uh, in the desert selling weapons and everything. So at this point, too, superhero movies not just are good but they're actually topical and they're actually capturing the zeitgeist in a way now where they never really have before and both these movies would go on to be huge critical and commercial successes on their own i mentioned all the award buzz there uh from there we uh again i kind of got to speed this up because i do want to have q a we got uh 2009 to 2012, we start seeing a new superhero movie almost every month now, sometimes only a couple weeks apart. Every actor in Hollywood is uh, lining up for the chance to don a cape as part of the next great saga. Some of them work, some of them don't. Uh, you got great redemption stories. Again, Robert Downey Jr., who had become something of a joke before the first Iron Man, really, you know, gave his career a shot in the arm in a major way, and now is, you know, one of Hollywood's sweethearts and for good, good reason. Uh, the movie press also gets involved in a pretty big way, and this is a chance, too, for me to pat myself on the back as well. We see the explosion of comic book and superhero YouTube channels, which, you know, have been keeping me, keeping me fed for a while now, made, made this golden age never end. Because as we found out, hey, uh, you know, when Brad Pitt is cast in another movie, that's one article. But if Brad Pitt is cast as Adam Warlock in the next movie, oh, that's a hundred articles right there you get to write. Oh, what are the best Adam Warlock stories? You know, ooh, what could they be drawing for? What could this mean? So it's been really good for the movie press, which I think is yet another reason why superhero and comic book movies have managed to take over Hollywood, because it's so good for the press. It never stops being good. Uh, now lastly here we have 2018, Black Panther becomes the next massive franchise, gets the first ever Best Picture nomination uh, for a superhero movie. Up until now it had only really been technical awards and everything. It didn't win, but it was still really nice to be nominated. And I think more than anything this puts a nice little exclamation point on what I've been trying to say about superhero movies taking over Hollywood. This was, you know, uh, like the ultimate, like, you know, thumbs up from the industry. Like, yes, yes, you did it. And yes, you are considered for a Best Picture nominee. Now, much like fantasy and horror, you're probably not going to win, but it's always nice to be nominated. So, yes, everyone, that is, in short, my panel. Uh, 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 hope you had some fun. Hope you had some laughs. And, uh, yes, we do actually have time uh, for some questions for people who are interested. Uh, yes, yes, you, fellow in the back.
Ah, yes, very good. So the fellow in the back who you might not have been able to hear asked about scenes that may or may not have been taken out of the 2002 Spider movie as a direct reaction to 9-11. Yes, there's a whole, there was a whole trailer campaign involving the Twin Towers where he catches a helicopter between them of some guys who robbed a bank. Yes, and yes, they took it out, and yes. Which, you know, that's another thing, too, I didn't mention about that 2002 uh, Spider-Man movie. Re really vehemently pro-New York. There's the scene that I think a lot of people find cheesy, but the bit where they're all throwing garbage at the Green Goblin. Like, hey, you mess with one of us, you mess with us. I love stuff like that. I'm a, I'm a soft sell for stuff like that, but I thought that one was really great. But uh, I, I guess the question, too, moving forward is what, uh, what is next? for the superhero movie. Uh, obviously there's a lot of buzz around Joker right now that it actually toured the film festival scene and actually got a lot of great buzz and won a lot of film festival awards and that's pretty big and everyone assumes that uh, Joaquin Phoenix is probably gonna be a shoo-in for a uh, best actor nom at the end of the year, which I think is really cool that we're at the point now where superhero movies can get that more regularly. So, you know, that's that's pretty sweet and that's pretty great. Uh, any more questions? Uh, anyone else? Yes. Uh, good question. Uh, the fellow here, again, for anyone who didn't hear, uh, was talking about uh, casting for the next Spider-Man movie. Could it be Craven? And if so, who could he play? I know that's a weird situation, because I know Sony is making their own villain movies now, like Morbius and everything else, and maybe Craven will get that, maybe Craven will be in the new movie. Uh, man, that's a really great question. Uh, <laughs> I don't think he ever really got his due. Uh, but I'm a big Liev Shriver fan. Uh, he, of course, was Sabretooth in X-Men Origins Wolverine. Yeah, eh, we don't talk about it that much, but I think he can do an Eastern European accent, and I always assumed a guy named Sergei Kravinov should sound like that. I, I, I think he'd be a good fit for that one, definitely. Uh, uh, anything else from anyone? Yes, sir. Oh man, that's a rough one. What's my personal favorite? I, again, I feel like much like my favorite comic, I feel that changes with the win. I know I watched a ton of that first Avengers movie because, I mean, just that scene, again, a scene that I think will be burned into cinema history forever, that big circular shot where they're all standing together and, oh wow, we actually did it. We actually built up to all these movies and now they're crossing over the way comics do. It's hard to top that feeling. That's pretty great. Uh, I, I know I've been watching a lot of that new Shazam movie recently because I thought that was just a lot of fun. Just a lot of fun. I really like the, the general feel of that. That Shazam movie is funny too because it is so thoroughly adapted from Jeff John's uh, short-lived Shazam series from the New 52, which he never, those stories never even got a full book. They got backups in Justice League. So to think that that material is so new and yet they adapted it so well. Uh, that one definitely sticks out in my mind for something that I certainly enjoy. Uh, anyone else? Man, we are, we are just making way better time than I thought we would be. Yes, sir. Yes, exactly. That's a, yes, that's a wonderful, wonderful comment, sir. I could not agree more that a big uh, power now of comic book and superhero movies, uh, especially Iron Man, as we mentioned before, especially others too, is that, you know, they're really accessible. It's been accessibility is key, that yeah, there's a lot of people 
who have never picked up a comic before in their life, but they will go see the movies and that they can keep along and that they have their own sense of continuity of events and everything. And that is a beautiful moment because we're all sharing in that together, a feeling that I thought only I would have. But yeah, that's yeah, that's really well said. And you know, with, with stuff like that, I'm sure we're only gonna see more and more. Obviously, uh, it, it's not movies, but uh, there's kind of a superhero uh, TV arms race at the moment right now where it feels like every uh, company is trying to get their own show going. You got all those new Disney Plus shows that are coming out. Uh, Amazon is experimenting with stuff like The Boys and everything like that. Books that I never thought would actually ever uh, get adapted are getting adapted now as kind of a reaction to every superhero uh, worth his salt either having a movie in development or already having a franchise right now. And I think we're only going to see uh, more of that as time goes on, more kind of outside the boxy sort of ones. Uh, anything else? Any questions? Uh, you, you can ask me about anything. I'm, I'm a comic book YouTuber when I'm not talking about movies. That's why I kind of have to be a jack of all trades on these things. Yes, sir. That's really good. Uh, again, you mentioned Craven before. I would love to see an adaptation of Craven's Last Hunt, which I think is not only one of the best Spider-Man stories ever, but maybe one of like top ten comic stories for me personally. That one's just really good. Uh, oh man, something that I would like to see adapted. I'm a big Green Arrow fan, which I know puts me in a weird place because he has the TV show that's been going on for so long, which basically means that I'm probably not going to get a movie because that's been the one that's been seared into the public uh, consciousness and everything. But I would like to see, I don't know, something like Longbow Hunters or, uh, or, or, or even just, you know, tackle his relationship with his sidekick and everything. You know, the, the famous cover there, My Ward is a Junkie. I would like to see that story adapted somewhere down the line. I, I don't know if that's really summer blockbuster material, but it's something I would definitely like to see. Uh, man, Daredevil has so many great arcs. I know we're not going to be getting another show for a bit, but man, if they, if they ever put him back in the movies or something, I would like to see, you know, like Murdoch papers or something like that done. That would be good. Those are really good stories. I feel like I could do this forever just talking about, ooh, that was a good arc, that was a good arc too. Yes, sir. Hmm. You know, I used to have a much longer list of those, of comic books and storylines that I thought couldn't be adapted. Yeah, but Hollywood continues to prove me wrong every day by being like, really, you're doing that? Uh, again, I thought The Boys was unfilmable, and then they filmed it, and in fact, I think they actually made it better and more palatable on television, so good on them for that. Uh, Watchmen, again, was one that I thought, oh, they'll never put this on screen. But that Watchmen movie has problems, but I enjoy a good chunk of it. I really like the extended cut, where they put the tales of the Black Freighter back into it. I think if you're gonna see a version of the movie, you should see that version of it. Uh, what is it, American Gods, they're doing that now too. Uh, I, I guess something just like really trippy, maybe like a serious house on a serious earth, Batman, because so much of that story is driven by the fever dream artwork that they got going on here. But I think that, you know, if DC was willing to put like a lot of money into a really good CG movie or a really good animated movie, I think they could capture that one. That's what I think. That was a good question. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, now that Disney has acquired Fox, uh, when's the, inevitably the X-Men and Fantastic Four make their way into the MCU, mm. how do you think they're going to do it? 
Oh, another excellent question. Again, I think this is one on every comic fan's mind right now, and that is, hey, now that the Fantastic Four and X-Men are back in the Marvel fold, how do you introduce them? When do you introduce them? Again, I, I wish I had a better, more interesting answer for the X-Men. Honestly, I think you could just do it at any time. I know there's been some theorizing out there that with uh, Doctor Strange 2 and, uh, you know, the, the multiverse of madness that they might try and, like, you know, do some world fusion there. Or they might just, you know, hand wave it away to be like, oh, well, mutants always existed. You just thought they were inhumans. Or, oh, mutants always existed. Xavier just used his mind powers to make you forget that they existed. <laughs> Uh, I, I actually heard a really good pitch uh, for Fantastic Four, and I wish I could say I owned this one. But the idea is, is just totally steal a page from Planet of the Apes and say, oh yeah, they went up into space in the 60s when they were supposed to. They got hit by cosmic rays like they were supposed to, but then they just stayed there, frozen in stasis until modern day, and now they're back. Doom was still on Earth, though. He's the leader of Lord Barrett. It's a lot like Korea now. That's why you haven't heard about him, because, you know, he controls the media and what gets in and what gets out. But hey, now that his old college roommate Reed Richards is back, maybe maybe you should go deal with Lord Barry and what's going on there, maybe. I wish I came up with that one, because that's such a good pitch, and I hope they do that pitch. Then again, you know, they could also easily hand wave it away to be like, oh, hey, remember they sold Avengers Tower? Yeah, the Fantastic Foundation bought it. There you go. They're moving in now. They literally just moved into the neighborhood. That, uh, that's one they do. I, I also heard the theory, too, that maybe Osborne uh, bought the tower, and that's what they're eventually building up to as well, that that's going to be a twist. Again, I wonder... Especially as the fate of Spider-Man right now in the MCU is kind of like, you, 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 get, you get one more, and then after that, who knows? It's anyone's guess in this crazy world. Uh, all right, uh, anyone else there? Anything at all? I still got like 15 more minutes. Uh, no? All right then. Well, I guess, you know, uh, always leave them wanting more, as they say. So I want to thank you all so much for coming out and spending some time with me on this one. Uh, I got to be the first panel of the day, which is pretty cool. Uh, there was supposed to be a cosplay panel before me, and they didn't show up. So, uh, you know, no pressure on me. I just literally set the tone for the entire show. So uh, thank you all so much, everyone, for coming out and hanging out with me. Uh, I am Cave Joel. You can find me on YouTube and Twitter. Uh, I will be selling merch over by the back. Uh, all weekend. Again, I feel like they were trying to tell me something by putting me there. It was either that or out by the dumpster. So uh, thank you so much, everyone. And uh, I will see you all next time. Bye-bye.